Hello, and welcome to this very special episode of Uva Radio Interviews. I'm your host, Niall Moore. Now, you may have heard that there's an election coming up. You may have even heard that it's an historic election, that what happens next Tuesday in America will define all of our lives for many years to come. And that's probably true, so we should do our best to understand exactly what's going on. Luckily, we're joined today by Penny Sheets Thibault from the University of Amsterdam, lecturer and researcher on journalism, the media, and every four years, the US elections. She'll be helping me to unpick everything that's happened until now in this most surreal of American campaign seasons, what's going to happen on Tuesday, and what might happen in the weeks and months to come. Hello Penny, thanks for joining us. Hi Niall, I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. There's a lot for us to get through and I I think I've got you for about 40 minutes. So I'm going (laughs) to jump straight in with my first question and forgive me if I move us along quite quickly. Oh, that's fine. I I wish we had longer. There is honestly so much to say, but um, we'll try and hit the main points. Um, Okay, so my first question, I want to start with the polls. At the moment, everyone, the New York Times, The Guardian, The Economist, 538, they all show Joe Biden and the Democrats having an almost, you would think, unassailable lead in the polls, double digits in some cases. Many are even predicting that the Democrats are going to sweep the Senate and the House of Representatives. Can we trust these polls? (laughs) That's a great question. Maybe more than the million dollar question at this point. I think that there's there were a number of lessons learned since 2016, uh, and I had a recent conversation actually with a, a polling expert at the University of Pennsylvania about this. Um, so, to a certain extent, pollsters have revised or taken account of the errors made in 2016 regarding sampling weights, for example. Okay. And also, I think the timing of the polls. So, some of the perceived uh, surprise in the 2016 results related to the fact that some of the most, uh, let's say, cited polls were taken fairly long before the actual election day. So this year, things are different. Of course, you know, we still have a, well, a few days to go. So polls will continue to be released. But we also have a number of, a historic number of early voting that's already occurred. So that means that, to a certain extent, um, we might feel less bound by these polls, right? We know that a lot of results are already in there and we don't have to worry as much potentially about whether these polls are going to affect last minute behavior on the part of voters. Right. Um, I think what's also important to keep in mind, of course, uh, is thanks to our frustrating electoral college system, really the only polling margins that have a a meaningful impact are those in the swing or battleground states. Most of which Biden is ahead in. Uh, I think it's only Ohio where Trump still maintains a bit of a lead. Okay. And I think that those margins are typically a bit closer, though, as well. Right. So we can feel, I would say, maybe more confident than we could in 2016. I certainly feel encouraged by these results uh, for the Biden camp. But it's certainly worth, I think we've all learned to not take anything for granted. Yeah. And... To, to pick up on that early voting, um, when it comes to mail-in ballots and I guess early voting in general, the, the received wisdom is that it tends to be Democrats who are engaging in that, whereas it will be Republican voters who are more likely to turn up on election day. So considering we've seen tens of millions of early voters already, 
would we be fair in assuming that that means there's already been an, a large turnout for Biden? I think that is a fair assumption. I think, you know, that conventional wisdom, as you say, suggests that the Democrats will not only be the early voters, but also these sort of later arriving and later counted mail-in ballots. That leads to this blue shift, quote unquote, after um, election day itself. Right. So we can assume that a lot of those votes have maybe been for the Democratic camp. Um, but also since it's become so politicized this year, it becomes a political statement if you're choosing to vote, you know, by mail versus in person, if you're dealing with the pandemic uh, cautiously versus devil may care. So it's potentially even exacerbated those patterns. Yeah. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see what results are available on election day and how that differs also state to state. Yeah. And it, I'm, I'm perhaps like you, I, I'm encouraged by the polls, especially because many of the outlets uh, having clearly been burned in 2016, are keen to point out that even if they are wrong again by the same margin of error that they were wrong last time, in many instances, Biden will still be ahead. Um, yeah. But there are two things that are giving me pause for that. The first one is the nature of polling. And I know that pollsters have fixed that in terms of uh, looking at the education of voters in a way mm -hmm. that they didn't before and using that as an indicator of likelihood to vote for Trump. But is there still the risk that people who answer the phone to someone from the New York Times just don't want to admit that they're going to vote Trump? That's a great question. I think there's actually relatively little evidence that that what we would call shy Trump uh, support problem was a problem in 2016. Ah. So I think that... Um, more than we might think anecdotally, people aren't terribly shy to say that they vote for Trump. And I think now that the climate has become even more polarized, you know, part of me thinks that those who want to support him are going to be loud and proud. And we kind of see that also anecdotally on the campaign trail. Right. So I don't know if it's, it's as much that problem that we're not getting honest responses, but I think it's... Uh, it's more a question of, you know, will ballots be counted and will folks who are planning to turn out on election day actually be able to feel safe to do so, et cetera. So those are the uncertainties. Right. Ultimately, polls are just a snapshot in time um, and the day that they're taken. They're nearly not predictive models. So we, we can never really rest on our laurels and hope that they'll predict the future perfectly. Right. And I want to pick up there on something you said um Basically, my second, uh, the, the second thing that's giving me pause is voter suppression. Um, and the polls seem to indicate that the Democrats are doing a very good job this time around of attracting voters. But what they can't take into account is how effective the Republican campaign of trying to stop voters has been. And just some of the things, I mean, some of this stuff is very, very... Sneaky. So you have Trump encouraging his followers to watch the ballots to make sure there isn't any fraud, which is clearly a call to intimidate voters. Mm -hmm. um, you have the Californian Republican Party setting up fake ballot drop boxes around the state. You have obviously, I mean, this this seems like forever ago now, but uh, Louis DeJoy, I'm not <laughs> sure if I said that right, Louis DeJoy? I think so. Yeah, well, let's go Louis, maybe. Louis. We'll call, we'll, we'll fancify him and call him Louis. <laughs> Uh, the Postmaster General dismantling mail sorting machines, removing post boxes. You have 
Um, in Texas, the Republican governor has removed ballot drop-off boxes, he says, to prevent fraud. But actually what you end up with is a situation where there's one drop box per county and some counties have millions of people. So you can imagine the barrier that that is to getting your vote in. Um, and then you have things, silly things like the Virginia and Florida registration w- websites crashing on the last day to register. And of course, you have years now of gerrymandering, um, redrawing districts to give outsized weight to Republican voters so that they can decide their district, even if that area actually happens to have a lot of Democrats. Mm-hmm. So there's all of that. And then... That's the kind of the sneaky underhand stuff. But what really gave what really worried me was the recent Supreme Court decision uh, that Wisconsin couldn't count mail in ballots after Election Day, even if they had been posted and received by the Postal Service before Election Day, Mm -hmm. which seemed all of this together. And I, I don't know how whether or not we're able to quantify the impact of this, I, we're not, I don't think. Yeah, but, I don't think either. But this is what worries me. How how big an impact do you think, and I, I know we just said we couldn't quantify it, but <laughs> to talk about it, is this going to decide the election? In effect, has this election been rigged? It's also an excellent question and a terrifying one. Um, I think, yeah, given that we can't really quantify Um, the impact of these various measures. I mean, there's been studies on, of course, the influence of gerrymandering over the years and how that has given, as you said, a a clear advantage to a lot of Republican uh, candidates in Republican districts. Beyond that, I think it's very hard to figure out um, what the impact of these things will be. Part of me hopes that they're simply part of the sort of fearful narrative of all the things that could go wrong. But of course, the Supreme Court decisions in particular are, are very problematic if people assumed that they had some more time uh, and they don't now. And then you add to that the potential pressure to drop off your ballot in a ballot box and the fact that maybe we can't trust those. So I think that, you know, in addition to this unclear question of how much of an impact that might have on the vote totals, the clear impact that this is all having is also just fueling Trump's narrative that we can't trust this election. We can't trust the results no matter what they are. Uh, And based on the polling, if we did use it predictively, of course, we would assume that Biden would win. Um, So he, all of these steps work to destabilize the entire process. And that is very much in Trump's favor, potentially. So for me, where I, you know, get woken up at night and can't fall back asleep is thinking about essentially what that will look like on election day and in the days and weeks that follow what's going to happen if that distrust uh, is really taken to such a level that no one will accept the results right and when it comes down to that i i would like to say if it comes down to that but i think it's probably a when um the supreme court is going to come into play um Can you talk to us a little bit about what their role will be? We've already seen how in the run-up to the election, they've been making very important decisions that are already affecting um, voting. But what will their role be in the days afterwards? Hmm. Well, it's this is also something, I mean, I think one of the reasons that we're all so fascinated and terrified by this is that it's difficult to pinpoint exactly where the last line of uh, defense, so to say, is. So the Supreme Court can help, as they did in 2000, and I think probably other elections I'm less aware of, uh, they can help adjudicate legal decisions about whether recounts should happen, uh, whether certain ballots should be counted, etc. right? So legal contests that make their way all the way up through the courts can end up there. 
and the Supreme Court could rule, as they have helped now with these uh, state rulings. And can I can uh, I just ask yeah. there, you say in 2000, referring to um, Bush and Gore. Yeah. Can you just very briefly tell us what happened there and, and what role the Supreme Court played? <laughs> sure, I'll try, although I'm admittedly not an expert on how the court plays a role in these things, so I hope I don't misstate anything. Uh, but there, the, you know, there were a number of voting problems, and in particular in Florida, um, the ballots were flawed. The sort of the voting machines literally had defects, so that the the dimples or the chads made in these pieces of paper—it's the term for that—yeah, uh, weren't hanging always, chads. yeah, hanging chads. Yeah, they weren't entirely sufficiently depressed to be counted. But does that mean that the votes, the ballots, uh, should be considered invalid, or can they be recounted? So eventually, this made its way up to the court, um, who eventually said, "Okay, now this." I think that they were ready to rule on the fact that the recount should eventually be stopped. But it's possible that around that same time, Gore eventually conceded uh, the race as well. So I honestly, I'm, I'm not super clear on the, the timeline of that, but I know that the court has a role to play. And that's, of course, concerning now that we have this uh, six to three sway towards the conservative side. Again, just not in and of itself is that problematic necessarily because in principle these jurists are you know very experienced and should be trustworthy uh legal professionals but yes. yeah. the climate in which we're operating now is such that we assume that their conservative leanings and their track records will make them favor the more voter suppression side of things rather than the what I would call the democratic side. And yet there is some encouraging news. I was reading this morning about decisions made regarding North Carolina and Pennsylvania, where the Supreme Court has allowed the extension of the absentee ballot deadline in both those states, mm -hmm. which is extraordinary because it seems to run exactly counter to the spirit of the decision they made in Wisconsin when it comes to mail-in ballots but it's also interesting because in both of these decisions or I hope I'm right in that I know in at least one of these decisions um, the new nominee to the Supreme Court Amy mm -hmm. Coney Barrett um, did not have a say she recused herself on the basis that she didn't know enough she was too new mm. and that it wouldn't be appropriate for her to weigh in so there I to your point about them still being professionals and perhaps still maintaining some integrity and respect for the height of the office that they now hold, mm -hmm. perhaps they will make the right decision and not necessarily a political decision. Exactly. I like to believe that. It also helps me continue to believe in, you know, the things that America stands for in my mind. Um, but it's it goes, if nothing else, to attest to the nuances, again, of all these different state laws and particular state cases. So I think a lot of the headlines that oversimplify this, especially abroad, um, just assume the Supreme Court can strike down anything it wants. They'll cancel all the late ballots and the whole thing will be rigged. But it's not that simple. Right. Um, and as you say, these, these differing verdicts reflect that complexity. And on the Supreme Court, a last word on this. I find it fascinating, and uh, I, hope, I hope that... Um, it's not inappropriate to talk about somebody's death in these terms as fascinating. The death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, was obviously an extraordinary moment in this this whole thing. I don't think anyone saw that coming. And it, it had the quality of an ancient Greek drama. I, I mm. couldn't quite believe that, that this card had been played by the universe. Um, mm. Obviously, there is the anxiety that 
Ruth Gader, uh, Bader Ginsburg's death has opened up the seat to Amy Coney Barrett, and that's going to swing the court far to the conservative right and has implications for the future of uh, American society and American law when it comes to everything from um, reproductive rights to women's rights in general, um, all of the all of the things that progressives have fought so hard to secure. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, part of me wonders if if you're a Democrat, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg may have been exactly what this this election needed. Um, mm. I'm not suggesting she did it on purpose, of course, though <laughs> she she's definitely someone who sacrificed uh, her life for America. So I wouldn't put it past her to have said, OK, one final flourish. Mm. But um, I know f- I have a friend who uh, was an ardent Bernie supporter and he loved Bernie because Bernie seemed to have some real ideas for change. And when the nomination was secured, it seems, by the Democratic Party for Biden instead, when Bernie was so far ahead, he was deflated. But it mm-hmm. was the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which finally, he's, he's living in the UK at the moment. When she died, that's when he requested his mail-in ballot. That was <laughs> the moment at which he said, something, I have to do something. This isn't yeah. about Bernie or Biden. This is about not Trump. And do you think that effect is shared amongst other Americans? I think it was certainly galvanizing for some voters. Uh, She had this celebrity sort of fan base, but warranted, and was obviously a very principled proponent of um, a lot of civil rights. And also, yeah, just represented this calm but principled voice on the court. So I think, indeed, your friend's anecdote is potentially reflective of a number of young, especially on the Bernie side, these people who want to be part of the more uh, progressive wing of the party who don't feel represented by Biden. But I also think that potentially the way that Biden reacted to that and the Democrats, uh, the Republicans, excuse me, reacted to that. And the way that Biden has run his campaign in the last couple of weeks has also shown that, I don't know, it makes me feel more optimistic that it's more about the party than about Biden, if that makes sense. Yes. So I feel that it's, you know, there's the cult of personality of Trump and very much everything is about Trump. And with Biden, potentially because his personality is less uh, motivating for many people or potentially because it's strategic, the focus is, seems to be, to the extent possible, less on who he is and what he'll do, but more on this idea of anything that will just change the culture, get us back to where we want. And I think that that leaves a window for these various wings of the Democratic Party to feel that they will have a voice. Right. And so if that's deliberate, it's a very smart strategy. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Um, Okay, so let's move on to, we've touched a little bit upon this already, but let's move on to election night itself. What can we expect? (laughs) I think what I'm reading and hearing uh, is that there's sort of, you know, one of three options. There's a fairly clear and strong lead for Biden. There's that it's all a toss up in all the swing states and we have no idea. Or there's, of course, the alternative, a very clear lead for Trump. Um, Now, I think it's difficult to know. I'm certain that if there's a clear lead for one party or the other, it will be difficult for the other party to concede because, of course, we do have many states where late ballots should still be counted. It will take time to count um, all the mail-in ballots differently than the live cast ballots. And we'll want some checks and balances on the integrity of that process. 
So rather than having these returns come in, I think exit polls, you know, will be skewed this year since it's only a certain type of people and number of people that are going to be voting live. Um, we won't expect the usual slate of state-by-state -state results to be broadcast that evening, I don't think. So instead, I think it's going to be about what we know and what we don't know and how the parties strategically react to that news. I'm, you know, we've had these rumors, uh, not just rumors, but let's say clearly spoken sentiments a few weeks ago that Trump wouldn't accept the results of a defeat. But since that time, <clears throat> in addition to the strong backlash from other Republicans that he got, it seems that there's also been a narrative surfacing that he might just, you know, be ready to flee and go lock himself up somewhere. So that also gives me a little bit of confidence that if the polls should be correct, Biden does have a strong win, that maybe Trump won't contest it and send his supporters out rallying violence in the streets. But that's kind of the worst possible outcome. It could break down into a violent series of days uh, with, you know, people from both sides fighting in the streets, literally, and who knows what role then the National Guard or other military branches might end up having to play. It's a real doomsday scenario, isn't it? Yeah, that's the most doomsday. But it, the, the, the tragedy of all of this is that having seen the, the uh, Trump-directed police violence against and uh, violence perpetrated by his supporters in the last few months, especially in response to Black Lives Matter protesters... It's, it's sadly it's not unimaginable I know but I think it's also clear that a lot of the violence that ends up the well let's say the the incidents that occurred in some of those conflicts apart from when he used the I think it was the National Guard to clear peaceful protesters to sh do his little you know image stunt with the Bible oh, at that yes, church yes. Even held, in it, Oregon, held it upside down oh, <laughs> like the anti you, like yeah. the Antichrist um <laughs> I think that the violence isn't always, in that case, perpetrated by these military personnel. So it's, in theory, they should be there, right, to quell violence that's occurring between citizens. But yes. that's the key question, too. So just as we don't know exactly where and at what level the Supreme Court may have to intervene for which kinds of cases in which states, we don't know exactly to whom this, the National Guard will feel that they need to answer. There's also, of course, state guards who are, I think, responsible to the governors of those states. So he can't act unilaterally and just, I mean, there, there, are, there are nuances that right. I use as an out to escape the doomsday scenario, essentially. And but I, it's, but I it might that, be naive. No, well, I mean, I think it's probably right. I think it's very easy for us um, as consumers of the news to buy into the oversimplified narratives that we read in the media, mm -hmm. uh, which do set things up as a for and against, um, you know, the kind of the state versus the people. And as you say, that's that's not how it works when it either when it comes to voting in the electoral system or when it comes to law enforcement. And mm -hmm. there are there are many big, complex place, America. <laughs> uh, and I think we forget how big and how complex it is because it seems so uh, red and blue. Yeah. When, when we read about it. Um, okay, so election night. It, so if it's, if it's unclear or if Trump is ahead on the day, then we can expect a battle. 
because, yeah. you know, obviously Biden isn't going to want to concede because he will imagine that the mail-in ballots that are being counted are going to swing things as you, I can't remember what the term you use, but swing it back to blue. Yeah. Um, and obviously if it's contested, it's contested and why would either candidate give in? Um, so really the what we've got to hope for is that Biden is ahead on the day. And if he's yeah. ahead on the day, and, and clearly ahead. Clearly ahead on the day. And we know that the votes that are, that are still to be counted are probably going to inflate his lead. Then perhaps we might have a situation where uh, Trump gives in. Yeah, that's, you know, that's my hope. But okay. still, you know, there's rumors of Republican strategies to replace electors with faithless electors at the electoral college level to send their own slate of electors to washington in december i mean there's still a number of crazy paths that we could pursue um but so the best hope yeah is that biden would have a strong lead and trump would decide to to, to chicken out basically and now just uh, i'm i admittedly have a shallow understanding of how the electoral college works like most people do like most people <laughs> do yeah an arcane piece of law but um my understanding is that if a state votes red or blue, then a team of electors, is that right? Mm -hmm. Who make mm -hmm. up the electoral college of that state, let's say Utah, um, the red team go to Washington and say, we vote for our candidate, Trump. How, can that not, how could that be corrupted by Republicans? It seems like a very simple dynamic. The votes <laughs> are counted for that state. They're either blue or red, and so either the blue or red team goes to Washington. Yeah, well, there. So in <laughs> in two states, it's actually done a little bit differently. It's done more based on congressional district, and then there's two statewide um, electors. So that's Nebraska and Maine. But those two couldn't alone swing the election. Okay. Uh, in some ways, I would think that that's better, right? Because it's district by district rather than the state total. But with gerrymandering in the background, that's increasingly um, problematic in terms of a method, I would say. At any rate, yeah, in principle, you'd think, okay, the state's popular vote total is for Biden, therefore we send our blue electors. But again, it gets back to this question of legitimacy and trust. So if Trump and his followers can sufficiently call into question, let's say, the legitimacy of those results in a state, and that state has a state legislature and or governor that's favorable to the Trump side of things, they might not accept the results and therefore say, okay, well, we're going to send our own independent slate of electors. So I actually just listened to this fascinating Radio Lab episode um, playing out these war game scenarios with a whole bunch of very uh, involved experts, essentially. And they were saying, you know, if indeed there's evidence of sort of fraud or unrest in Michigan, for example, but Michigan allegedly goes red, it could still be down to uh, the Democratic governor. I mean, this is oversimple, of course, so mm -hmm. forgive me to election law experts. But when you have a conflict essentially between the results, the there's a question of distrust or potential validity issues, and you have a, a partisan governor who's been in this case, actually almost literally attacked by the right, yeah. she could see the opportunity to send an, or to encourage her state to send its own slate of electors. So you could just have double electors essentially show up in Washington and no one really knows exactly what happens then. Okay. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> in principle, these electors are bound by the state results, but 
just as you're not allowed to put out fake ballot boxes and steal ballots, uh, people can break the law and deal with the consequences after. And it's not always a fixed law, depending on the state, I think. It's extraordinary that something that should, that something as consequential as an electoral system can be so open to the whims of one person. Yeah, it's absurd. And again, maybe, you know, the complexities are such that it's just difficult to put one's finger on exactly where each of these things might break down, where the legal loopholes exist. Um, but reading several high-profile you know, media reports lately makes one take pause and think, okay, there are a number of places where the system really could break down in a way that we've never seen before. Right. And this is a nice segue into one of the big questions that I have out of all of this is that it seems... Anyone who's played uh, paid close attention to American elections and generally American politics for the last 10, 20 years will already have known about gerrymandering and the other um, tools of voter suppression. And they will already have had their doubts over the integrity of American democracy. But now this has been blown up and it seems we're talking about it other people are talking about it it's in all the global media there is no hiding from the fact that american democracy has these deep flaws has has it been exposed once and for all and will now something be done to reform american the american democratic system ah wouldn't that be lovely um i do think that the exposure has potentially galvanized more folks to join this movement to change things. The problem is, of course, all the steps necessary to change something like the Electoral College uh, or anything that is in in some ways described by the parameters of the Constitution, especially when you have so-called originalists like Coney Barrett joining the Supreme Court. Um, and just, so to, pro- just, yeah. just to explain that, an originalist is someone who believes the literal meaning of a constitution written 300 years ago yeah and isn't open to in, to reinterpreting it for the modern world which frankly is absurd i mean i had a lot of actually a lot of respect for scalia who was one of the sort of proponents of this movement but the fact that this is the way you would interpret it and to say that you know i mean computers didn't exist then so does that mean there should be absolutely no constitutional regulation of anything having to do with computers in and of itself that's a ridiculous argument right yeah And I'm, again, oversimplifying um, at any rate. So whether that can process will occur uh, through the various levels of laws and if constitutional amendments are necessary remains to be seen. I'm hoping at a minimum that this might promote most states to join what's called the Interstate Vote Compact, which is a way to sort of supersede the Electoral College's problems and say that each state who signs on to this compact will give its electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote. Right. Um, so that's only a few states away from potentially being enacted. It doesn't require any constitutional amendments or anything. Maybe it'll do that, but I think it depends on what the results are. I think I could easily see, you know, if, if everything calmed down, Biden wins by a landslide, Trump disappears, and the people who support Trump but aren't real extremists sort of go back to being semi-rational people or rational people, then... (laughs) We take semi-rational for now. Yeah. (laughs) Then we might just forget about it because the system worked, right? Right. 
but I hope that we don't lose this momentum to revisit the Electoral College, revisit how redistricting is done and by whom, um, and also campaign finance, which is a huge problem. We, I mean, this is, you know, it feels like this is America as Indiana Jones sliding beneath the closing door of the Temple of Doom. <laughs> if, it, if it makes it out of this, it will have only been by a hair's breadth. And you, yeah. have to, you have to think that Biden, if he wins, and the Democrats will do something to make sure that it doesn't have to come this close ever again. And it, they don't have to be um, that democracy isn't this unstable. Indeed. And I think, I mean, again, part of this is, in, is the lovely complexity of the U.S., as you've said. Um, it's a huge place. It's a complex place. And legally, our elections are done very, com you know, complexly, for lack of a more elegant word. Mm -hmm. So I don't think in and of itself, any of those factors needs to be problematic. But the Electoral College obviously um, has its flaws. And if we see again a result where the popular vote and the Electoral College vote don't match, then I'm sure that there will be some attempt at change if the partisan environment can do it. But with the current polarization, you know, it's just difficult to get anything done. And of course, if, if that does happen, it likely means that Trump has officially been re-elected, even if it's only by the Electoral College and not by right. the popular will of the people. And he's not going to be open to reform because he's benefiting from the status quo. Exactly. And he has very clearly said, you know, they want fewer votes. The more people that vote, the less likely he is to win. He's yes. basically admitted, yeah. um, which is also <laughs> rather distasteful. Yes, absolutely. But there's no hiding from the facts. Um, democracy more generally, I know that... You've spoken about the polarization of America. It's a polarization that I've witnessed in Britain at home mm. as well. Um, a lot of which has been the blame for which has been laying at the door of, of places like Facebook and Twitter. Um, mm. It seemed to me that we should have learnt the lesson of how dangerous political messaging and um, hidden advertising, uh, hyper-targeted advertising and generally putting our democracy in the hands of social media algorithms. We saw the dangers of that with Brexit and with mm -hmm. Trump the first time round. Have we learnt some of those lessons? I, I do think that, <clears throat> well, let's say I'm encouraged by the fact that at least Facebook and Twitter seem to be making some efforts toward banning certain types of content or regulating. Uh, and they certainly put badges now on everything, right? So to a certain extent that is an improvement. It maybe doesn't go far enough, you could argue. Um, but I also think, and I'm assuming there's empirical evidence for this, uh, that people who want to receive and believe those kind of misinformed messages don't care if Facebook puts a badge on it saying, we question the validity of this, or you should go check this generic site, right? right. So the people who want to stay in this, their bubbles of kind of the conspiracy wing of either side, um, I think they'll do that no matter what. And so those steps that we take to regulate misinformation, uh, to control some of the real micro-targeting of specific messages, those maybe, hopefully, will have an effect on the more moderate or potentially swing voters. Now, yeah, I, I'm always of mixed minds or two minds over the whole social media thing. I think it's wonderful that we can have connections across the world. Certainly now in, in times of COVID, we need that. Mm -hmm. But I also think that, you know, 
it's not social media in and of itself that facilitates uh, these trends, but there's also just societal changes in how we interact with others and what we tend to believe and who we tend to trust. And all of those are changing. And then you bring in social media and uh, the algorithmic society and those sort of exacerbate these trends to the extent that, yeah, we're just living in a very kind of isolated tribalist society, unfortunately. And it's not clear in the current environment how to get back out of that. Yeah. I mean, the only hope really seems to be regulation. Um, mm -hmm. it, it is encouraging that Twitter and Facebook have started to take clear steps towards clamping down on misinformation and um, sort of nullifying the power of um, political bad actors who understand how to abuse the algorithms and abuse the platforms. Um, mm -hmm. But it, it does feel like, it, I mean, it feels like it's not enough, but then what does enough look like without spilling over into uh, censorship and setting right. and setting very troubling, for their own reasons, very troubling precedents about what counts as valid information in society? Yeah, I know. And I think <clears throat> part of me just wishes we didn't have social media at all. So we just, all of that, you know, people always used to have extreme ideas. It was just way harder for them to contact each other and to organize. Right. So it's not that the fundamental landscape of human thought has changed, I don't think, but just these tools. And indeed, you can't necessarily regulate the tools in a way that's not going to raise a whole lot of hackles and raise a whole lot of, as you say, very problematic issues regarding freedom of speech and expression. Yeah. So I really don't know what the best solution is. I'm, I'm, <clears throat> you know, I'm hoping for kind of a societal shift back away from the social media phenomenon, as archaic as that may sound for me to say. But it just, I think that we all now, and even in your generation, you've realized some of the negative impacts it can have on your private life and your well-being to spend so much time on social media. And I think we as a society broadly, as a human population, need to have that um, awakening and then realize that maybe this isn't the, the perfect thing that we thought it was. No, and I think there is, as you say, um, it, I think that is possible. And I think it's possible because many of us uh, and... This election has been a flashpoint for this, but many of us have been feeling very anxious about this election. Mm -hmm. And that anxiety is, is, is pushed to an extreme by social media. But this is, I'm talking personally, but I'm sure that other people probably share this, that the constant bombardment of uh, news, the tweets, the headlines, the mm -hmm. he said, she said... Um, the daily outrages from the fingers of or thumbs of Donald Trump himself on Twitter, <laughs> they are bad. They're bad for your mental health. They mm -hmm. they really do grind you down. And so I do think it's possible that bit by bit, perhaps not in one giant societal shift, but trickling through until we hit a critical mass, people will start to change their behaviour when it comes to interacting with social media and start to pull back from something which is at the moment doing at least as much harm as good if not more yeah um but this is actually my last question and okay. it leads into it um anxiety um <laughs> this is it's been an anxious time for us all if trump wins and i'm i'm, I'm sorry that um <laughs> obviously as an american you can't quite disengage this readily but mm -hmm. what should the rest of the world do 
if Trump gets another four years? Ah, I think it will require Europe and its allies to work harder together to ensure that he can't do more damage than he's done. Right. <clears throat> so I think that there needs to be more. <laughs> I mean, I would never thought I would utter this sentence out loud, but there needs to be essentially more anti-Americanism, not right. against the citizens of the country, but against the policies promoted by Trump and his appointees, um, which, you know, in a vast majority of cases seem to be relatively problematic, right? Or not helping global stability and peace. Now, people would argue with me, certainly people from the right, um, and I think he's achieved some things that potentially aren't all negative. It's difficult, of course, to make these generalizations, but I think that if Europe wants to survive as a European Union, um, it's going to have to work really hard to combat another four years of this very anti-European, anti-elite, anti-cooperation kind of right-wing populist moment uh, that would be ushered in again, or continued, I should say, if Trump were to be re-elected. And, but could it have, I mean, Brexit, throughout the rest of Europe, Brexit had a galvanising effect. It, it mm -hmm. kind of, everybody saw how torrid a time that Britain was having um, in trying to leave the union. And I think that was a prompt reminder that actually life's a bit better on the inside. Could another four years of Trump have a similarly galvanising effect amongst European leaders and amongst the remaining European countries, unfortunately without Britain, um, yeah in sort of saying it's it's time to strengthen our union and to really come together as a block um, uh, that can work more independently without the need for um, backup mm. from America economically, militarily, in terms of security and all that stuff. Yeah, I would think so. I think that would have been the case certainly had COVID not happened. But now... COVID is causing so many problems, devastating problems worldwide, um, and including in the EU, not only economically, of course, but uh, in terms of how now we're all just reduced again to our national restrictions and national uh, death counts and infection rates, yeah. that I think that it's difficult to imagine that sort of rallying cry until this is under control. Right. But yeah, I do think, you know, it's possible that it would galvanize that that pushback against this tribalism that we see. And on an individual level, can I stop watching American news if Trump gets back in? <laughs> um, I think, why not? I mean, do you need to? Yeah. I think that what we need to learn about the states makes it into international news outlets um, in terms of what policies might affect your life here as a as a, an Englishman living in Amsterdam. Mm. Um, but I think that, yeah, it'll be a pity to see what else suffers on the American side if Trump is reelected, right? Is there going to be some kind of morning, meaningful boycott on American goods or American cultural goods? I just hope, you know, just as we, I think, in good education are taught to do, you divorce the leader of a country from all your assumptions about every single individual citizen of that country. So we'll go back to most Americans pretending we're Canadians when we're abroad <laughs> um, and see where we go from there. But I mean, eventually he'll have to get out of office. So yeah, eventually things I hope will get better and if we can yeah. address the climate. <laughs>
<laughs> things always things always change. Uh, of course, yeah. yes, we do need to. Don't shouldn't forget about climate change. That's yeah. still there. Um, good. Well, that's. I mean, that's. Yeah, I, I wasn't expecting to end on quite such a, a reminder <laughs> of our collective doom. Uh. However, I think what I've taken from this conversation is that. Well, what I've been encouraged by generally and what has been reinforced by us chatting is how much the anti-Trumpers, whether that's Biden supporters, whether that's Bernie supporters, whether that's Republicans who who are who are upset at this mm -hmm. guy tainting the image of their party, they have rallied. And it's been really encouraging to see that the lessons of 2016 have definitely been learned insofar as the, the Democrats and people who don't like Trump aren't resting on their laurels. And yeah. there is a strong... There is a strong movement, there's a well-funded movement, and it seems mm -hmm. like there is a movement ready to fight this all the way to the end, in the courts, in society, hopefully not on the streets, yeah. um, to make sure that American democracy comes out of this intact. Absolutely. And I do think, I will say, just for the final record here, that I am feeling more optimistic today than I was, let's say, two, three weeks ago. Great. So let's hope that that continues and we have a positive result in the coming weeks, I'll say. Let's hope so. <laughs> um, Penny, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And listeners will be back, I'm sure, next week in the wake of the election to discuss the results, whichever way they go. And we'll see you then. Thank you. <laughs>